You are tuning into the third episode of our second season of our series, Are You for Cinema Education? This episode was written by Dr. Anthony Tobia and hosted by Robert Wood Johnson Medical School students and produced by Amal Issa. In this episode, we psychoanalyze Little Miss Sunshine, directed by Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris. The commentary in this episode is done by Samuel Stram and Amal Issa. To see more of our content, check us out at WickedNights.com and on YouTube at Wicked Nights. Enjoy our deep dive and be sure to tune into our next episode. Focus on the fictional case titled Little Miss Sunshine. So, um, to the group, where would you like to start? Olive. Olive? All right, with all full disclosure, uh, none of us here are uh, trained, so specialized in child adolescent psychiatry. Uh, so we'll be very careful. That said, uh, what were your observations? Which unfortunately is pretty common. So not not really something that would be outside of our cult, uh, culturally sanctioned norm in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think her dad, um, the part when he was telling her not to get the ice cream because she would be portrayed as like, in quotes, like fat. Um, I think that stuck with her because then in the pageant, she asked someone if they eat ice cream. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting. Um, back to body image. Yep. And then, you know, as piggy packs, what we just talked about this morning, and that is early childhood experiences. Uh, children this age are sponges, right? So uh, as the, we'll call it textbook, social support parents, uh, what they say, what they do is modeled, and even if you don't think uh, what you're saying or what you're doing is around or about your child, uh, it's still very likely they're going to pick up on it. Right? So uh, don't practice ageism. Uh, kids this age are very bright, and they're very impressionable. Uh, and by the way, you could date this back. She's, you know, as old as she is. Uh, the onset of all this begins much, much, much earlier. Right? And yes, no doubt. There's no, there's no doubt that was going to stick with her. And even if it were done more subtly, I mean, the reason why it was done so explicitly was for our benefit as, as viewers in the audience. The child doesn't need it to be that explicit. It could have been implicit. It could have been, um, let's call it subclinical, and it would still have resonated with that child. So very important to remember. What would have been like a more subtle or subclinical way that may have presented? Um, you know, along, I mean, especially given that scene, Again, from a more parental perspective than perhaps a, psych- a psychiatric one, although psychiatric too, maybe having ice cream after you eat a meal, right? Maybe ice cream is the treat you get, so we're not going to use this for the child. We could use it in this room. The positive reinforcer, uh, you eat a good meal, uh, you get a treat. But let's set it up as a positive reinforcement paradigm. That's behaviorism. Uh, that's operant conditioning, uh, which is not necessarily mutually uh, distinctive from parenting. But that would have been a better way to model it than to shame her the way he did. That's kind of going off the impressionability, like the end scene where she was dancing on the stage. Um, It was kind of, her performance was, I guess, coached by her grandpa, who was very kind of explicitly like sexual, and that kind of translated a little bit into like the dance as it was a little bit inappropriate for I guess like a children's pageant. Um, she's like dancing to the song Super Freak and basically start like taking off like parts of her outfit during the performance. Yeah. Now, I mean, the wording in the script was such that again, I think this was done explicitly for our benefit. 
the grandfather did not necessarily have to choreograph that with her to have her behave the way she did. Uh, she would she would have been picking up on all that messaging just by the way he conducted himself in that home. Right? But I think in uh, in the, the dedicating uh, everything to him, her wording made us believe or allowed us to believe that she he actually coached her. Uh, and this was for him when in fact that did not necessarily have to take place. She would have had that same uh, performance um, even without the specific or explicit coaching um, in as much as she again would have picked up on uh, his messaging, the way he conducted himself as a grandfather or as a father and father-in-law in that home. Let's talk, it's a brief tangent, let's go to him um, before we leave this character any other diagnoses to make here? And if you were kind of inserted into this film, inserted into this script, what may have you spoke to him about or provided him that maybe would have changed the plot and the direction of this narrative? Well, he has a, an opioid use disorder because he was apparently kicked out of Sunset Manor where he was staying for snorting heroin. Um, not sure if there's any other involved, but um, he looks like he continued to kind of, at the start of the film, like continue to snort the heroin. Um, there's like a scene where he was um, snorting at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And his being kicked out of Sunset Manor, how might that be uh, described in a clinical setting? So we have, we have a behavior identified as his snorting heroin, and then we have a consequence of that behavior, which is his then getting discharged. Uh, from his residence. And in psychiatry, perhaps a case conference, uh, what clinical wording might we attribute to that very scenario? That is, the heroin use appears to have led to clinically significant distress or impairment, right? Um, and if that is the case, and that is the case, we're dealing with a disorder. Uh, so not only is there heroin use, but there's likely to be opioid use disorder here. And if his family, if his uh, means of social support had identified that, um, then one of the things that may have been written into the script would perhaps his have gotten help. And if that were the case, even though there's up to 35% that relapse, uh, there is a chance that maybe the narrative would have changed. Or at least in, from a psychiatrist's perspective, we would have hoped to have made a difference. What I would like to get to next kind of opens things up to other characters. So let's kind of take this doorway. Um, clearly the focal point of the film and uh, therefore the focal point of the family. Um, again, as a contributing editor, would you have maybe added a couple of other nuances to this film that would have made it perhaps more medically accurate or at least give it some more information to provide uh, education about other mental illness? Being, being how much she is the center of attention to everybody. So one of the things that I thought was impressive about this movie and certainly comes together in the final scene, as inappropriate as it may have been, is that um, um, everybody's behavior is really defined through this particular character. I mean, she really keeps this family together, right? She is the cement. And there is a syndrome in psychiatry where that occurs as well. However, this is like the antithesis of that. So. Uh, it shares a common quality of the child being the center of attention and therefore the cohesiveness of a family. But of course, the syndrome that's published in the DSM 
is or results in clinically significant distress or impairment, whereas obviously the end of this movie is quite different. So it's like the 180 degree uh, anti-hero of Olive. What syndrome am I uh, talking about? Where the child becomes the center of uh, a maladaptive family dynamic so as to keep the family together. So it's currently published in the DSM as factitious disorder imposed on another, which, which was previously known as factitious by proxy, which, which was previously known exactly as Munchausen's by proxy. Very similar dynamic. What character would you like to go to next? Maybe like the brother, and he was taking a silence for the time being up until the point that he found out that he was colorblind and couldn't fly anymore. And I thought that was interesting. So, you, well, everybody here observed this. So now that you are with your attending and you have to present this patient, what do you think is going on with him? What would be call what you observed? Well, it looks like it's like selective mutism because it's not like he can't speak. It's like he took like a vow silence to kind of prove to himself um, like his commitment towards becoming the test pilot. Mm -hmm. So the thing we have to be careful of here, though, is that the way the American Psychiatric Association operationalizes the term selective is in social situations, uh, not necessarily the individual selecting uh, whether or not to talk. So I think you're right in that he is selecting whether or not to talk, but he is mute across all social situations. So he is going to avoid the diagnosis of selective mutism, which is published in the DSM as an anxiety disorder. Uh, on the other hand, this is mutism. This is an individual's deficit in speech that is not attributable to the direct and physiologic effects of a substance or another medical condition. Because if it were substance-induced or due to another medical condition, we would call it aphonia. Semantics. You'd be cons I'm thinking like a delusional disorder. I mean, they don't really go into it in the film, but like why he believes like if he speaks, something will happen. Like, yeah, I, and I don't know. Um, I don't have the information. I don't know why he's not speaking in the first place. I, I know he's it's alluded to in terms of his he, being disconnected. He wanted it was like he, he took a vow of silence until he made it into the military or the Air Force. He wanted to be a pilot. And that's why when they find out he's colorblind in the end, yeah. and he like freaks out and screams. Like... So the, the question I have, and I, again, I'm not sure if it was ever addressed or answered, is to ask him, and what would happen if you did speak? Is he, right. right? Because if, if you're right. If, if the answer is that he, uh, he believes that if he speaks, mm -hmm. blank will happen, including his not getting in to the Air Force, um, then we have to take the next step. Right, so let's talk about that next step. So let's assume that's exactly what happens. We're gonna write our own script now. Um, he can he communicates to you pr probably non-verbally that the reason why he is not talking is because of his belief that if he talks, he won't get in the Air Force, right? So um, give me some clinical terms that might be used to describe that belief. Delusion. Del that's the easy one, right? Delusion, that's where we have to, we have to start. There's a couple of others. Overvalued beliefs. Perfect, right? And what what we just named, what Ali just named, are the two polar opposites, because the overvalued uh, belief or idea is arbitrarily agreed upon to be 
or not be clinically significant, right? So there's the line right here of clinical significance. On the right side of the line is the overvalued belief or idea. So we probably all engaged in these. The end product, the one that is most downstream from that is called the delusion, which meets two qualities. Number one, it is clinically significant, so it's clearly on the wrong side of the line. And this delusion, this thought persists, that is, is rigid, despite being uh, provided evidence to the contrary. So it's fixed and rigid. So uh, that's the delusion. Uh, and then we have intermediate terms. So we have terms that also define something that is clinically significant, but the individual has insight to understand that new information should be incorporated to maybe uh, not remain so rigid. Doc, I know it sounds out of the ordinary, but I just can't seem to just shake this thought that if I talk, um, I'm not gonna get in the Air Force. Right, that's not a delusion. So, but it's clinically significant. So it's on the wrong side of that overvalued belief or idea, but it's not quite to the point and crossing over that line of A, not being reality-based, B, fixed and rigid. What are some of those terms? Obsession, preoccupation, rumination. And for all intents and purposes in clinical practice, they can be used interchangeably right? because they all really adhere to that same system, uh, the same rules of being clinically significant, therefore more severe than the overvalued belief, however less severe than the delusion in as much as the individual does have some semblance of insight. Any evidence in this movie to tell us where overvalued idea, delusion, or something intermediate, our character applies. I want to put him in the overvalued belief, not towards delusion, because I don't think he believes if he speaks, he won't get into the military or the Air Force. I think he did it because he somehow wants to use it as a proxy for like will. Like, I'm strong willed. Can I do this? It was more like a, a test to himself than any other belief, like something bad's going to happen. Sounds right. Now the only the only question here is if it is causing clinically significant distress or impairment in him or his family, we may have to move beyond the overhead idea or mm -hmm. belief. They but, didn't seem too upset by it. They seemed to just ignore him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so don't I don't disagree. So maybe an overvalued belief or idea here. Of course, during times of stress, that could change, right? Um, so that is, I mean, again, if you think about this as a gradation of insight, well, the higher the stress, perhaps the lower the insight. Uh, insight begins to get impacted with higher degrees of stress. Um, and we call that process, if it happens, stress-induced psychosis because that end product is the psychotic symptom of delusion. Uh, when you hear the word stress-induced psychosis or the term, um, it kind of gets along that graded process. Any other thoughts about the sun in Little Miss Sunshine?
All right, so um, other characters to discuss you want to discuss? Did you bring up the uncle? Yeah, I brought up the uncle. Okay, so what's going on with the uncle? From what I remember, I've rewatched this movie not too distant in the past. Um, he was recently discharged from a hospital or psychiatric facility. He's had his post a suicide attempt in this setting of like a recent breakup with a longtime boyfriend. And they won't discharge him home alone, right? Which is something that we would do. We would we would try to summon him. We could try to commit suicide. Have strong social support. So he like he can leave, but he has to leave with his his sister or something like his sister. So that's how he comes to be a part of this whole family. Mm-hmm. Um. So probably can diagnose him with major depressive disorder. Um, I think that's fair. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, he has a lot of like, you know, preoccupation. I guess with you know his his ex partner. Um, but I, you know, you kind of see him like change a little bit throughout the story. He becomes more communicative, more open, less withdrawn, more you know. Doesn't present as depressed towards the end. Yeah. Affect changes. I agree. He definitely, and he becomes more of a central character. Uh, I think once he sees the boyfriend at that like little gas station, uh, whatever inside the store, when he sees him go off with his new boyfriend, I felt like that kind of gave him closure, and then he became more a part, like she said, a part of the family because mm-hmm. of all the struggles that they went through. I think he found a place. Where he felt helpful in this in the whole everything they overcame mm-hmm. to get to California. Yep. The other part of uh, his personality um, is this mismatch between his being a scholar. Mm-hmm. Is it a MacArthur scholar? What was it? He, was it a Rhodes scholar? Yeah. scholar yeah. And, yeah, like very. <laughs> um, uh, who attempted suicide? which I think on the surface seems to be uh, a misfit. Um, does that remind you of any movie, by the way? I just, when I saw this character, uh, other than thinking uh, of the Netflix series, The Patient, where the roles are reversed, mm-hmm. which would be interesting, but anybody here familiar with The Patient? Mm-hmm. Uh, Cottrell's also in that. So anyway, he, he actually plays a role of a therapist. Mm-hmm. It would, it would have been interesting that if the person that he is treating in the Netflix series had a history similar to this character's history, um, it would have been a nice different play on the patient or doctor-patient kind of relationship and roles being reversed, mm-hmm. albeit in a, in a Netflix series versus this film. But that, that's only from my brain. Just wanted to put that out there. Um, much more importantly, in terms of this this dichotomy of someone, and he, he brings it up more than once, right? He defines himself through his academic achievement, and people who wear white coats tend to do that. Um, and if that academic achievement breaks down, if you feel a, fail a shelf test, um, if um, you have a patient suicide, you question not only your ability as a physician, but to the extent that you are a physician, the physician is you, you begin to question yourself, right? So that happens, and it happens to him. Um, he brings up more than once that he's a Proust scholar, mm-hmm. right? Did you know I was a Proust scholar? Did you know, uh, uh, you know, and he, he came in second for well, the scholarship. He was actually number one, but right. the number two is who the 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me brings that up. If Olive is not going to go to her next pageant and therefore keep this family together, maybe they do make her sick. Mm. It's, a, it's a little bit of a darker. I... <laughs> it happens though. As a psychiatrist, you will see people who make their kids sick so as to keep the family as a cohesive unit because they can focus on the illness and not have to focus on what is really going on with the uh, different diets. Okay, so when you say that, my I initially go to something very dramatic, like the movie Sharp Objects. Actually, it's a book, but I just watched the series. But like maybe in like a more subtle and probably maybe more common would be like focusing on like very small things kids have, like maybe asthma, or maybe um, it's a kid with like developmental disabilities who you have to needs a lot of support. You focus on that, mm-hmm. or it's not like you're making them sick, but you're just focusing on something they already could be, have. Could, it depends on which which rating you want your movie to get. You want to go R, or you want to go PG. <laughs> that it's all up to you. But you're right. You're right. You're exactly right. It could happen. In, in either case. Uh, of course, what ends up usually in our office is on the R-rated version. Uh, yeah. Because no one's going to tell the mom or family not to help their, you know. Right. Kind of yeah, they're usually going to come to clinical attention. Yeah. Right. However, no when, for anxiety when the illness is alleviated, whatever it is they're focusing on is alleviated because that person does graduate college and has a life of their own, maybe even including marriage, then they're gonna be in that stagnated uh, era of their life, mm-hmm. uh, their stagnated stage of their psychosocial development. So there might be an end point anyway uh, uh, of that particular version of the film. Uh, but the more dramatic film, the R-rated version, would have them actually making Olive sick. One of them anyway. I so, see that so <laughs> I'll watch it, I'll assign it, and then I'll discuss it with you. <laughs> so along those lines, uh, we, I think we mentioned this before, um, of that, that not-so-clinical term of catfish, right? Because that, that's called getting catfished. Why? So cat, catfish have a very specific enzyme that attracts bacteria. So in the canning industry, they pack patfi- uh, catfish with the fish that they are shipping, usually cod or herring. And in shipment, all the bacteria goes to the catfish. It arrives where, it, where it's going to arrive. Um, you unpack it, you get the catfish, you toss them, the rest, the rest of the fish are fresh, right? So the idea of one species, the child, um, getting all of the sickness so as to keep everybody else healthy, that's called getting catfished. Now again, MTV just annihilated that term, so most people don't know that, but then again, most people don't go to medical school either and relearn the correct term, but that's catfish. And uh, that's something that's, again, uh, part of the canning industry. Just to give it, I, I know nobody in the canning industry. Um, I've read that. Right. But that's what my movie would be about, is the catfish. Any other thoughts about Little Miss Sunshine? All right, covered a lot. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Tales from the Asylum podcast. Uh, this is Sam Shrem and Mel Issa, and today we're talking about Little Miss Sunshine. So in the main segment of the podcast, uh, Dr. T was talking about a lot of good stuff. There's not a lot I want to comment on. Um, this is really just going to be more addition. 
Moving on to Grandpa. Um, the only thing I actually want to talk about here is addiction. There's a lot of interesting stuff about addiction. It is, so there may be an explanation as to why the grandpa dies. So the grandpa overdoses like during the trip. And there's this like, there's this funny part where they have to go like steal his body back so they can make it to the uh, beauty pageant on time. He overdoses in a hotel room. Um, mm -hmm. and that kind of got me thinking about the, talking about the influence of environment on behavior, especially in the context of addiction. One of the best stories about this actually comes from Vietnam and the Vietnam War. With the United States, um, the armed forces in Vietnam, we actually kind of had a big heroin problem we were getting ready for all the for like the armed for, for our soldiers to come back and have like really bad heroin problems mm -hmm. um i think so i went and i looked up um lee robbins was a i think a psychologist in charge of like dealing with the addiction part of this mm -hmm. and so she estimated not as bad. She found like physical dependence symptoms in like 20, like one out of five soldiers, right? When they got back to the United States, only 1% like kept using and like stayed addicted to heroin. Interesting. Which is, it's kind of nuts, right? Yeah. That heroin supply is going to have a much harder time making it to the US than Vietnam. It's going to be, you know, you have more choices too. There's marijuana. Like, yeah. it's not just heroin. Although, no, nah, there's probably marijuana. There was probably marijuana in Vietnam too. So maybe that's not so much of a factor. But psychology would also predict that environment, like, you're outside of every, like, all the cues in Vietnam, like, you know, the daily sights, the daily, like, sights, sounds, structures, like, even just the feeling of being in an army camp, like, that's all gone. Mm -hmm. And all those little, little, almost subconscious nudges that add up and add up, they're just not there anymore. So it's, it was almost like a fresh start. And a lot of people took it and didn't really have that didn't really have a big problem with heroin. There was, there was actually, a, there's a, there was a study in 2014. Um, it was done by a professor at Princeton by the name of Kenzie, Kenzie Preston. Um, and she was tracking people you know, with a good son, of course, tracking people and you could predict when people would use drugs in the future yeah just based on their location data really yeah i think and i'm quoting from memory so i can be messing up details but i think it was like an hour to an hour and 90 in the future you could have a better than chance um a better than chance shot of predicting if they would use that's all inconsistent with grandpa using on the road because you know, yeah. the environment has changed. 
but it's not also inconceivable because he is strongly strongly addicted and still spending time around the same people what is consistent though is there is another phenomena and i don't think i i didn't take amazing notes in abnormal psych so i don't have the if there is a name for it i don't have it or i wrote down the wrong one i think i mm. only it was only written down under behavioral conditioning which that's a very broad term but the idea is when you are in that in when you are in an environment where you consistently use your body expects use and you show greater tolerance to drugs or you show you show greater tolerance to your drug of choice when you're in that environment however when you're out of it not only not only do you have lower tolerance or rather because you have lower tolerance it's also easier to overdose interesting which would explain grandpa dying yeah so grandpa also segues in nicely to uh behavioral addictions so you obviously have drugs right okay but as far as addictions go in the modern world it's not always drugs like you can you can get addicted to just about anything and what i think is really amazing is that dsm-5 uh substance use disorder diagnostic criteria it is actually like you can take out substance and you can put in like almost anything and you're like and it's like huh i'm answering some of these questions and i do not like what i'm hearing yeah so it's like taking the substance in larger amounts or for longer than you meant to wanting to cut down or stop but not managing to do so spending a lot of time getting using or recovering from the substance cravings and urges to use a substance not managing to do what you should because of substance use, continuing to use even if it causes problems in relationships, um, and a few other things. But like, if you look at like those first, only those first four, if you take out substance and you put in like YouTube, Netflix, I'm like, they're pretty accurate to like daily catch catch <laughs> me with an addiction. Like, oh no, no, but low key, like I know, right? There are things that you can do to make an experience like more addicting, I guess. So let's take an example of a casino and then I kind of want to, I want to change it into something else and show how it's similar to that. Okay. So I am pulling from uh, a book called Irresistible by Adam Alter. He's an NYU professor and... He wrote an entire book like about behavioral addictions in the modern age and honestly pretty good kind of scary and i would tell me um but honestly really cool super useful and kind of shows you how you can like leverage the same mechanisms that create an addictive experience to make something rewarding that like you want to be rewarding not like 
something that a casino would want to be rewarding. Yeah. If you won every time you played a game at a casino, or if you won half of the time, what do you think would create a better experience? I think winning half the time, because you would at least know what losing felt like. So when you went to win, you knew you knew it how bad like losing felt like. So when you won, it's like more fun. So that is entirely correct. Yeah. Nice. Which which is not great. So <laughs> yeah. you can so when you drop it really low, obviously, you don't play anymore, right? Yeah. But there are other there are other things that casinos can do. I know like they'll have an alarm that goes off every time someone like wins big. Mm-hmm. That manipulates something called the availability heuristic, which it kind of manipulates your like your gut feeling, mm-hmm. your like that estimate of your prob- of your probability of winning. If you have a bunch of examples clear in your mind of people winning, even if you know your odds or you suspect your odds are like one in five thousand you have all these examples of people winning it's hard to keep a good estimate of the probability in your mind because all you hear about like people winning people winning people winning yeah um so that causes you to like vastly overestimate the probability that you'll actually win interesting so even though like without that, you might have like a one in five thousand shot, and you would just like, you would not play. If that kind of tricks you into thinking it's like one in five hundred, or like something around that, you'd be like, okay, mm-hmm. like I like I like this risk reward, even when it's like really not great. This episode of Tales from the Asylum was written by Dr. Anthony Tobia and produced by me, ML Issa with research by students and trainees at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson's Medical School. The commentary in this episode starts Samuel Shrum, our podcast intern. Tales is just one of our courses that sits at the intersection of behavioral medicine and pop culture. You can learn more about Tales and the rest of our curricula on our website, wickednights.com, and YouTube channel, Wicked Nights. Be sure to receive notifications about our upcoming events. Just search for us on Twitter and Instagram and click that follow button.